You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. Wednesday afternoon, October 4th, with so much going on midweek as always. Wednesdays always just seem for me to be the busiest day. But uh, my gosh, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? Back in the day, when everyone made Neil Gorsuch out to be a golden calf, I said, wait a minute. Are we sure we understand everything there is to know about him? Now, don't get me wrong. He's mainly going to be very good. But for those of you who haven't seen my article, I want to make sure you see it. Is Neil Gorsuch joining the bandwagon for judicial amnesty? Immigration, as you know, is the issue of our time, certainly as it relates to the judiciary. Um, and is he going south on us? This article will be in our show notes. But before we get that, I just want to just do a round robin of issues very briefly just to demonstrate what a dumpster fire this administration is, this Republican Party is. Nobody is speaking for our position, our voice. Nobody is giving our side of the story. And when I say that, I don't just mean our view on a given issue, although our view on a given issue is never put forth in the public forum. I mean the very nature of the issues that are important to us, the stories that are important. You look at the, the storyline, and the conservative media just follows the liberal media. Those who follow conservative review, CRTV, conservative conscience, you know, our vertical here at conservative review, you'll understand that there is so much going on that is so important that nobody is talking about. Obviously, the courts are remaking America as we speak. I, I, I'm starting to wonder what has to happen before people pay attention to what's going on in the lower courts and how the Supreme Court's either ignoring it or siding with them. Everything, everything is going there. I mean, just this week I've seen, and I know I, I did this in our fir- first podcast this week, but um, the, more has happened since then. Courts are re-state, reinstating DACA amnesty for individuals. Courts are blocking... American citizens, citizens of California from gaining standing in order to sue the California government for violating federal immigration law, instituting sanctuary cities, and diverting taxpayer funding to handouts for illegals. But at the same time, the courts give standing for illegals to obtain all sorts of rights. Now the Ninth Circuit, I have an article out there today, Ninth Circuit is now saying that illegals have the right to bail. And not just any bail, but affordable bail. They have to be able to afford it, too. Folks, we are experiencing the rape of America at the hands of the judiciary. They are violating our national sovereignty in every sense of the word. There is no sovereignty left. They are ensuring that illegals could come here at their will, or if we initially let them in as a legal immigrant— but they don't have citizenship yet, they could commit a plethora of crimes, then they could unilaterally assert jurisdiction, obtain standing in court to sue against their deportation, 
and then during the proceedings, force us to let them out on bail, disappear into our communities, do all sorts of harm, and there's not a darn thing we can do about it. Now, there actually is a lot we can do about it, but our political leadership has no will to reign in the courts. But before we even get to the courts, I mean, this administration has become a joke. So on amnesty, it turns out, from what I hear, Tom Cotton, in a meeting with with the president, had to convince him to move to the right on immigration, to not just give up on DACA amnesty um, without making preconditions. As you know, my opinion is amnesty can never work for us, and, and history has shown that. But then you just go around the different issues going on. You have Mattis and Dunford, you know, Mattis, Secretary of Defense, uh, General Dunford is the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staffs. He's being, or he's he had a confirmation hearing because he's now being renominated for that position. Which why is there nobody in Congress giving our side? No, nobody in the Senate pushing back against his renomination. This is a man who is adamantly and publicly breaking with Trump on transgenderism in the military, adamantly promoting. Everything in Afghanistan, Trump said in his speech, he wouldn't. By the way, remember, I warned you about that. Don't listen to Trump's speech. Look what the administration is doing. This administration is in chaos. You got Tillerson out there. Everyone's talking about, obviously, this is the one thing people are talking about, the report that he said uh, Trump was a moron. Um, But anyway, he's out there, obviously, promoting the Iran deal. Mattis testifying before the Senate yesterday. Says he and he not he he doesn't just support the Iran deal, but he believes that moving away from it will harm our national security. Yeah, pay no attention to the hundred billion dollars um, they uh, in windfall that that much of it much of it has been diverted to Hezbollah. And then what what we're doing in Iraq is insane, insane. We're screwing the Christians, screwing the Kurds. Siding with Turkey, siding with Iran, siding with Baghdad, which is Iran's proxy. Still funneling a billion dollars to Baghdad, which goes to Iranian hegemony. We're handing Iran a corridor straight to the Mediterranean for free. Actually, it's not free. We're paying for it. So, you know, I'm hearing rumors that Trump really does want to get rid of the Iran deal. And he might do it. But here's the deal. At this point, even if he does that, it's going to be kind of like getting rid of the DACA amnesty. He'll give a six-month period, and he'll make a cliff that we can't go over it, so we really have to renew it. Or you know, Congress will wind up saying, "Yeah, we'll we'll uphold it." Same similar thing, like like he's doing with amnesty. And then obviously, the entire time you'll have Kelly, McMaster, Tillerson, Mattis, and Dunford publicly uh, saying how great the Iran deal is, how we need to fix it, how we need to make sure we don't permanently move away from it. And this is the problem. We're essentially fighting for a party and a presidency that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So even the few things that Trump kind of follows through with, and the only reason is because, and this is a good thing about Trump, he is very sensitive, as as I've always noted, very sensitive to the public criticism from conservatives that he's not fulfilling his campaign promises, which is why we need to really hit him there. We need to keep honing in on that. But the problem is he does it half-heartedly, and then everyone he hires is a jerk. 
So he, he doesn't like Tillerson now. Well, gee, what happens when you hire all these people and you never interview them about their worldview? Or if he did, maybe he just doesn't care because he himself really doesn't have one. I mean, this is just so frustrating. So, so frustrating all across the board. So on foreign policy, first on Afghanistan, I hate to do another see I told you so moment, but here we are. Isn't it funny how when senators were pressing the administration, you know, Dunford and Mattis were testifying, what exactly is your strategy? I mean, it literally makes no sense. The biggest thing people are forgetting is that there's nothing new under the sun. We had a massive troop surge from 2009 to 2014. You know, there are about two years there, especially where we had close to 150,000 coalition troops, and it failed miserably. So what are you going to do there with 4,000 more troops? So said, well, maybe we could bring put 8,000 more troops there. That's what they said. And then to do what? So what's interesting is Dunford actually said, oh, no, well, you know, you, we're going to be closer to the front lines. Oh, isn't it funny how a lot of the even conservative apologists, when Trump announced uh, the doubling down on Afghanistan, they, they said, well, look, you know, this time it's a little different because it's the Afghanis that are going to be leading the way. Now, we're not going to be so involved. We're just going to be training them. And I said, wait a minute. I said, there's nothing new about that. We were doing that last time when we lost over a thousand troops and then who knows how many thousands badly wounded um for what on behalf of an islamic government and and in fact it's these very dudes that are going and destroying us because the afghani government on the one hand we have to do all the heavy lifting we're going to be close to combat lines but because by the way the entire country is a combat zone there's no front line i don't know what he means by front line by being there um, when you're engaging in social work in a combat zone, you're definitely at the front lines, and that's the problem because you're in the most precarious situation. You're not advancing. You're not, you know, in in combat mode, but you're vulnerable. And then this time, the Afghani government is going to know, like they did last time, they're going to know all of our troop movements. It's going fil- to filter out to the enemy, which is sometimes indistinguishable from the Afghani government. Um, so it's the worst type of thing where we're in combat, but we don't have control over it. Um, and they get veto decision, veto power over our movement. So everything we feared in Afghanistan, I hate to say it's happening. Um, oh, and by the way, before I go on with any more bad news, cause it's only bad news today, there is one good piece of news today. I was planning on going after an agricultural ag worker amnesty at the house judiciary committee. They were going to mark up an amnesty bill for illegal aliens who are ag workers and we we successfully blew that up so for now they're not bringing it so one piece of good news anyway um just before we go back to the courts on iraq i wanted to read to you part of an article very well thought out article and i'll link to in show notes from nina shia at fox news opinion um She's just she's worked on religious freedom freedom at the Hudson I believe the Hudson Institute here um, speaks it out about the Christian genocide in the Middle East and he, here's what she has to say we we talked a lot about the Kurds you know the fact that we're not backing them and instead we're backing Iran. 
but, it, but it's even worse. Iraq's Christian and Yazidi communities have survived beheading slavery and bloody religious genocide by ISIS, but they may not endure the grossly unfair and badly managed USAID programs that are now meant to help them following ISIS's defeat. The ugly possibility in that U.S. assistance policies may finish the terrible work that the fanatics of ISIS started. In fact, as Congress will learn Tuesday at a hearing on this issue, and it did take place and they learned it, things are like they were in the Obama administration, only worse. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and USA Director Mark Green continue to channel over a billion of aid for Iraqis through various UN agencies which divert the money away from the smallest and most beleaguered minorities who suffered most grievously under the Islamic State. For all the past three years, U.S. humanitarian aid has bypassed the Christians and shortchanged the Yazidis. The Chaldean Archdiocese of Erbil, that's the capital of, of the Kurds, which has been the sole guarantor of care for most Christian survivors of ISIS genocide, has recently exa- has received exactly zero of the $1.4 billion of U.S. aid since 2014. Um, Unbelievably, to get U.S. assistance, Yazidis and other genocide-targeted minority in Iraq and Christians were both expected to go to the U.N. refugee camps that are infiltrated by ISIS sympathizers. The deep trauma, deeply traumatized minorities rejected the aid offer and sought private help instead. Um, here is where things get dicey. Let me just... Uh, cut this short now both groups are at a historic crossroads either iraq's non-muslim minorities get help to leave their displacement shelters in kurdistan and rebuild their shattered towns or in in despair they must emigrate to see the extinction of their ancient communities along with iraq's religious pluralism she goes on to say how their population has dropped by 80 percent um let's see do 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 um okay here we are here we are. This this is the kicker, and this is the thesis we've been pushing for for quite a long time. Quite quite a long time. Um, in September, State Department officer Breezley dismissed my own plea, declaring that Nineveh Christians don't need help because the church is taking such good care of them. Meanwhile, Iran has opened a new elementary school and formerly Christian Bartella, named after the Ayatollah Khomeini. Tehran also completed a mosque and library there. At the ribbon-cutting ceremony, Iranian diplomats, keep in mind, they're on the ground there, and Iraqi officials gave speeches. Iranian-backed militias flying sectarian flags, men, checkpoints in other Nineveh towns where Christians have not returned. So we have expended our money, in some cases lives. A a, a U.S. soldier was killed in northern Iraq um, this week, and no one seems to care delivering Christian Iraq parts of Kurdistan to guess who Iran. I'm not exaggerating when I say giving it to the Shia Baghdad backed militias, Baghdad backed government is giving to Iran. It's not just that they're allies with Iran. It's that Iran is running the show. The IRGC officials are on the ground there militarily, diplomatically, Politically controlling the situation, we we are giving Iran the ground for free. This is what stabilizing Iraq means. This is what we can't allow Iraq to fail means. We can't allow allow Iran to fail. This is even worse than the Obama administration in that respect. Unbelievable, unreal. You're not going to hear this anywhere else, of course, because we don't have a normal conservative platform discussing what's important. 
And, and in that vein, let's turn to the courts because that's really, it, it's funny. Eventually the courts are going to decide diplomatic and, uh, you know, military decisions too. So, you know, it's just a matter of time. But the courts are doing to immigration what they have done to marriage and life. Now, they're taking over everything. They're going to decide transgenderism in the military. They're going to decide state flag symbols. We spoke about that earlier this week. They're going to decide even Medicaid they're getting involved with in California. Nothing, nothing is not decided by the courts. Obviously, redistricting is now all decided by them, siding with the Democrats, of course. Election law, you name it. But immigration and sovereignty is is the worst thing. That's the thesis of my book, the nexus, the intersection of immigration and the courts. Because that is the private property right of the entire people of the country as a whole. And what the courts are doing in, in a series of relentless decisions percolating in the lower courts, Supreme Court doing very little to stop it, in some, casing, some cases upholding it, is blocking every mechanism from enforcing the law against illegal aliens and criminal legal aliens. Remember, if you're a legal immigrant, um, you're only here conditionally. We could deport you at any time pursuant to the statutes to what Congress decides. Um, and if you are if you come here and you commit crimes, even if you are initially accepted consensually by the country, hence an, uh, a legal immigrant, but you have no right to remain here and we could deport you and you have no substantive due process rights that we have to prove ourselves or, you know, other than just show that you're the right guy. We didn't misidentify you and um, you committed the crimes. You're, that's it. You're out. That That is the, that that's sovereignty. That's what the courts have said for 200 years. Now the courts are between giving them a right to bail, a right to affordable bail now, and they abscond, they never show up for their deportation hearings and therefore we never catch them. By the way, there's 2.3 million illegals that are known to ICE that are out of custody in varying degrees being monitored by ICE, but very tenuously. A million of them have final deportation orders and are not deported. 368 or so thousand of whom are criminal aliens with criminal convictions, aside from being here illegally. A a violation of the number one purpose of having a government. But now, even if you if, if you had a president that wanted to enforce the law, the courts are saying sanctuary cities are the law of the land. Federal government can't clamp down on them. State governments can't clamp down on them. They're, they're giving them, again, rights to get out of detention, rights to all sorts of due process, and rights to be here. I can't even keep up with the number of cases. If I wrote an article for each one of these things, I would have about 20 to 25 articles on immigration just and the courts just every week. And by the way, this is the picture that the legal smart set in the so-called conservative legal movement, this is the picture they're not getting. This is the picture they're not seeing because they're not following this. So they don't understand how severe it is. And this is where Neil Gorsuch comes in, confirming a concern I had during his confirmation. Now, let me just preface by saying that I, I still think Neil Gorsuch is generally going to be good, but you know, like I said before, even if you're 100% like Scalia, Scalia himself said when he was on the court, 
in this last year that the court was worse than ever. I mean, we needed another few more seats. And then even then, it's a, it's a lower court problem. There's, I don't have enough time to get into t- today, but I could review my famous article, um, a dozen reasons why the courts are irremediably broken. And it's kind of because of this. You see, they get all the at-bats. Everything, they get all the standing. Illegals could get standing. They could do whatever they want. They could lie, cheat, and steal, create new precedent, ignore the old one where we feel bound by them, even the so-called good judges. And here is where Neil Gorsuch is adopting a very central premise of the left on immigration as it relates to the judicial power over it, sovereignty, due process rights, and and the nature of deportations. I know this is a little bit detailed. I'm going to link to my article in show notes, but you guys, this is the smartest audience in politics, bar none. Um, and it's important to get into the details because it's not some random case. This is the backbone of really the linchpin of what the courts are doing now. In addition to them blocking the travel ban, so-called you know immigration moratorium, saying you have a right to immigrate, what they're doing is blocking deportations now. And by the way, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, Stolen Sovereignty, I wrote it when Obama was still president because I realized that you could have a president one day that wants to enforce the law, and it doesn't matter because the courts have now taken over the one area of law they said for 200 years they certainly have no control over because it's national sovereignty. And that's because I saw even cases where Obama's Department of Justice, the few people they were trying to deport, the courts were blocking it. The ACLU has the resources to put every single deportation, every single immigration enforcement law, state or federal, in court in all 90 or so federal districts at any given point. Now, they won't pick. they'll, They'll pick and choose which ones they want because of the phony practice of nationwide injunctions and judicial supremacy of even the lower courts. But the point is, they have the resources to do it. So in this case, we had oral arguments on Monday. We had arguments on Tuesday on another important immigration case we'll get to at another point. But on Monday, it was Demaya v. Sessions. So basically, what happened there is there's a growing phenomenon where the courts are now throwing out not just immigration, not just uh, executive enforcement actions, but actual statutes, congressional statutes, they're saying they're vaguely unconstitutional. So this starts even before immigration. They're applying it to crime, criminal law. So they said that many aspects of the Career Criminal Act, you know, the mandatory minimums, this was the big Reagan era Um, Tough on crime, which is largely responsible, one of the many factors for the miraculous decline in crime. Um, There's something called the residual clause that, you know, it says, well, if you do this, you die, armed robbery, murder, rape, yada, yada, and any crime of violence. Crime of violence. So they're saying, well, and the court ruled this in, in the Johnson case, well, that's unconstitutionally vague. Okay. Now, we're not going to delve into that too much, um, you know, because I just I just don't have time. But I, just, just so you know, I, I fun, fundamentally disagree. I don't like vague laws, but there is an appropriate realm for delegating to the executive branch broader authority in some cases. 
And, you know, certain things, so I'll give you an example. And this gets into the whole Chevron doctrine business. Um, you know, that conservatives, broadly speaking, don't like when Congress, you know, delegates broad authority or the executive abuses authority. Maybe they don't exactly conflict with statute, but they really expand the scope of what it was meant or what it said um, in the regulatory scheme. We see this a lot with labor and environmental laws that, you know, the EPA is just running rogue, doing whatever they want. And, you know, it's just not related to statute. It's it's not, you know, related to it's, it's a violation of republicanism. And I, I, I agree with in a lot of cases because and then also just just as a as a you know broad background here. I understand why it's a due process problem. Because, you know, picture you own a farm or something and gosh, anything I do at some point. They could hit me up on the Clean Water Act. I, I could start digging a ditch in uh in some sort of canal in my farm, and you'll you'll find me or something. And I don't even know how to defend against. It. I don't know how to um, avoid committing the crime and being a criminal. It, it's there's no there's no pro, do, you know that that's a due process problem. Whereas if there's a statute, I know okay, don't do this, don't do this. There's a criminal penalty for this. There's a civil penalty for this. Okay, done. Um, I'll make sure to be a good citizen and not to do it. But if it's just given over the executive branch at any given time or era or type of an administration to just change it, it's very tough. So, you know, that's the Chevron doctrine, which, you know, gives broad authority to, to the executive branch to interpret. And the court's saying we're not going to strike it down unless it explicitly runs amok statue, even if it's kind of a somewhat of a broad interpretation or expansion of it, as long as it's a reasonable interpretation of statute. So... You know, Neil Gorsuch has been championed by the by the libertarians in particular because he hates this, hates this, hates the Chevron doctrine, wants to get rid of it. Now, I'm sure most of you are thinking, yeah, of course, that's terrible. Now, yeah, it is, but keep in mind, who is the final arbiter of that? I don't like Congress giving, you know, the the executive branch broad authority to regulate American citizens. But at the end of the day, that's a fight the political branches have to have. So fix fix the statute. Is it is it for the courts to say we're going to strike down the statute or the administration act action in pursuance to the the broad authority given to them by the statute? Is that the court's job to strike down? That's kind of Scalia's thinking. So that that's why Scalia actually agreed with the Chevron Doctrine, not because he loved the administrative state. He hated the administrative state. See his Morrison dissent on the um, special counsel, office of special counsel. You can't create something that's inherently unconstitutional. But, you know, if, if Congress wants to write very loose statutes, delegate broad authority, look, like, what do you want from us? Um, that's not the court's job because he understood the role of the courts. But I digress. I understand if someone wants to clamp down if the administration is going to act way outside of statute, but not conflicting. You could interpret it as part of it, but it's not unclear as it relates to the American citizen. Maybe as it relates to criminal law for criminal Americans. Here's the problem. Neil Gorsuch is joining in with the left in applying it to immigration and deportation. And that is where the problem lies. Very, very... Concerning. So 
law requires executive officials to deport anyone convicted of an aggravated felony. Now, an aggravated felony is defined by the INA as, you know, a crime of violence. So this is that same clause that they didn't like in the regular criminal statute. Well, it's there in immigration statute. Now, USC 16B defines a crime of violence to include any offense that is a felony and that by its nature involves a substantial risk that physical force against the person or property of another may be used in the course of committing the crime. Now, again, you know, well, let, let me just start off with the facts here. I'm getting I'm kind of <laughs> thoughts are just swirling in my brain here. Let, let's start from the beginning. The Ninth Circuit ruled that this statute is is unconstitutionally vague. Done. Done. So they invalidated a deportation that Obama wanted to deport of this Filipino legal immigrant, um, but he was still an LPR. He didn't have citizenship. They wanted to deport him because he was convicted twice of burglary. Not once, but twice. So it's not like, oh, you know, I was desperate for food or something. This is a bad dude that we don't want in our country. We should all agree to that. And, and this was deeply rooted in our history and tradition for 200 years. You see it in my book that, you know, again, there's a lot of talk about what happened in Las Vegas. We have criminals in this country. We have bad people, we have mentally ill people that commit violent things, and there's a limit to what we can do. But there is no limit to what we can do on an elective policy, which is immigration, to not bring in new people that give us problems. And therefore, Congress, this is not some flaw in statute. It's a feature of it. That they wanted to delegate broad authority to the executive, not to not enforce the law like Obama did, but to go even more. So it lists a bunch of things, but then it has what's called in legal terminology the residual clause that, look, if it's anything that, broadly speaking, may involve violence, we, we, we don't want the guy there. So look, I think everyone would agree that armed robbery is in the statute. That, that's there. Um, and then, but if you're pulled over for rolling through a stop sign, that's not that 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 wouldn't be a deportable offense. Not not by the way, not con, not that constitutionally you can't deport someone um, if Congress wants to write a statute that way. But it's not part of statute statutes that you can't deport that a person for that. So um, I just want to make it clear: you could deport someone because you don't like their hair, their race, their religion. You could. There's no. We've said that many times. As much as people get that wrong. Um, not just the right to exclude, but the right to deport settled case law, the most uninterrupted stream of settled case law written in the most emphatic terms um, that's still broadly cited today. Anyway, so the Ninth Circuit struck it down as they do everything. Oh, strike down, strike down. So again, you can't strike down an immigration law. If that's how Congress wanted to write it, that's how they wrote it. But they, they said no. You, 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 basically, the executive branch cannot pursue deportation for anyone pursuant to the residual clause, if, unless it's, I guess, blatant, you know, something that's, that's clear. So uh, the, uh, the Obama administration appealed it to, um, to the Supreme Court. And now that this administration took over, it's called Demai v. Sessions, but originally it was an Obama DOJ case. And basically, it was, it, this was one of the cases that was four to four. So it was deadlocked. So unfortunately, the Ninth Circuit stood, but they agreed to rehear it once we filled the vacancy and have the nine seat. Um, so it was four to four. 
even and, and you know how Roberts and Kennedy have been screwing us with a lot of immigration cases, a lot of other cases as well. But you see how far out there this is. Even they agree like, no, I mean, that, that that's ridiculous. You can't I mean, you can't rule on Constitution, immigration statute governing criminal aliens. If if this guy committed the crimes and was convicted twice for state, it was it was state burglary charges in um, California. ICE could come in there and say, you're you're out of here. Done. I mean, any ambiguity in statute or ambiguity, it has to yield to national sovereignty. This this was obvious. This is settled case law. Done. Period. So, wouldn't it be a no-brainer that anything that's four to four, certainly you get Gorsuch now, you win it, right? I mean, we have problems losing things even when Gorsuch is good because Kennedy and and Roberts uh, go rogue on us. But anyway. They reheard the case, and during oral arguments on Monday, Gorsuch was very aggressive, interrupting the deputy solicitor, General Kneedle, and really showing his cards that he fundamentally accepts the entire premise of the left on this issue. And when coupled with what he said during confirmation hearings and what he wrote in the Tenth Circuit case on immigration— I'm putting it together and saying, I'm, I'm calling calling a foul. I'm throwing a flag on this. I'm worried about this. Because normally you can't read so much into oral arguments. Sometimes the justices play devil's advocate to try to hone in your argument, you know, and just take the other side. But th- there's a real problem here. Um, both in the way he was doing it was very clear and then just in conjunction with what we know. Neil Gorsuch was saying that that criminal aliens have substantive due process rights against deportation, and that is the problem. He was taking on a premise that immigration is like everything else. So he hates this vagueness business, this business that he says everything has to be spelled out. You know, what do you want me to write your statute for you? Actually, Neil, we want you to stay the heck out of it. <laughs> he, he, he got restraint and intervention wrong here. We're not asking him to – he's like, you're asking me to write us that. No, no, no. The executive branch is enforcing it the way they want to. That's not your job. If it's vague, it has to yield to national sovereignty, especially if a guy is twice convicted of burglary. Okay? But what was so so upsetting is that he overturned – and it's no different than the left. The left is already doing this. The lower courts are doing this. The, what's called the plenary power doctrine. The plenary power doctrine means that the political branches decide sovereignty and immigration. That they, if they want to deport someone, that there is no due process against deportation. Now, to be clear, there's procedural due process to have your case heard one time before some sort of administrative official, just to ensure that you're the right guy, you're not an American citizen, that you indeed did what was problematic. You know, so we don't grab you off the street and whatever. You could say, no, I'm, I didn't do this, or you got the wrong name, you got the wrong guy, you got an American citizen. But this guy already had the hearing, the immigration judge, then you have the appeals to the BIA, which is the appellate body of the DOJ's administrative immigration judges. And then, you know, they took it to Article Three court, and of course, they won in the Ninth Circuit. And he he was saying that there is due process against against deportation. 
I, I mean, it, it is it is mind blowing. The courts have said for years that we could deport anyone we want. Here's what you can't do. Everyone has due process rights to the extent that we can indefinitely detain you for no reason. We don't do what Mexico does to their illegals and just throw them in a in, uh, labor camp and lock up the key. And, uh, you know, you're never heard from again. But we could tell you goodbye. But he was conflating. He was like, well, most people would rather stay in prison for six months than be deported. That, that's not the point. What's more severe? It's not a punishment. That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. You don't have a right to adjudicate that, a right to judicial review, and a right to um, crystal clear statutes so you know what I'm committing. Like, oh, I have to know what I'm going to be deported for. No. If, if you're going to go and be an immigrant in our country and commit burglary, you better – I don't care whether you know it or not. You're going to be deported. There's no – you see what I'm saying? You could apply that to a regulatory regime on farms for American citizens. I understand what Gorsuch is saying. But he's misapplying that to immigration that's very, very dangerous. And then he had the temerity to tell the Solicitor General, you're asking me to overturn, to, to get involved here? He tried to couch it in like judicial restraint. You, you, you get the shtick he's playing here. The Ninth Circuit got involved and invalidated deportation. We're now asking the Supreme Court, yes, to intervene, but not really because they're the head of the judiciary to get the judiciary out. And he was saying somehow that that's restraint. And we're asking him to, well, I don't know how to uphold a statute if I don't know what it means. So then by default, stay out of it. But stay out of it means you tell the Ninth Circuit to get lost and allow the executive branch to do it. And if the Congress thinks that the executive branch is being too overzealous in enforcing that residual clause, then they, they could change it. Otherwise, stay out. The default has to yield to American sovereignty and security. Illegals or criminal aliens don't have rights in that respect. They don't have such rights. Again, you can't lock them up. You can't beat them up. You can't harm them. They have the same human rights in that respect. But they don't have a right to be in our country. That is a, that, that's a prospective thing. That's not retrospectively punishing someone for that. It's like, okay, we just don't want you. Goodbye. We just don't want you. I'm not punishing you. Just goodbye. Um, so this is what is so scary because this is the basis that they're using to overturn the plenary power doctrine. This is how you get an Obergefell of immigration to say, uh, yep, they're like citizens. Deportation is now like any crime against any punishment against a citizen. Same judicial review, same due process standards in a substantive way. We're done as a country. We are done as a country. America, as I said last week in my podcast, has become a dumping ground of the world's crap. And now we can't get rid of them. And Neil Gorsuch, the one, you know, golden calf of, of the Trump years. Oh, everything was worth it just for Gorsuch. Really? So he could be the fifth vote ratifying stolen sovereignty and judicial supremacy over immigration. And, and this is a, a disgrace to Scalia's legacy because Scalia, as I noted in my piece in his Zavidas thing, he made it very clear that he said crystal clear deportation is is not like a punishment. Um, he, here's just a, a a quote from him. Where is this? Let me let me get this out here. 
Insofar as a claimed legal right to release into the country is concerned, an alien under final order of removal stands on an equal footing with an inadmissible alien at the threshold of entry. He has no such right. Meaning once you're following the delegated authority Congress gave you to deport someone, it's as if you're not in the country anymore. You are not here. You don't have a right to be here unless you're an American citizen. There's a very dangerous proposition. Let let, let me read you some more, um, you know, and and, and the fact that he was saying that there's judicial review over this. I mean, are are, are you kidding me? Again, the distinction is kind of like someone breaks into your home. That's an illegal alien. Or, Or let's say... You know, you allow someone in. Someone says, hey, you know, could I come in? Um, you're having some event at your house or something. So you consensually let them in, but then they start breaking things. They start stealing things. They're like, get out. I don't I don't want you here. There's no process. You throw the guy out. Now, that's different from saying, I'm going to go and just gratuitously beat the guy up and then tie him up and throw him in, in, in my attic. We don't do that in this country. We're not saying that that's a different thing. Deportation is not a punishment. It's prospectively get out. We This is our private property. You can only come here under this, if and under the conditions that we want you here. But, you know, what Scalia meant by... Um, by by saying that, you know, it, it, it's like you're you're not here. In Turner v. Williams, the court said that an illegal entrant does not become one of the people to whom these things are secured by our Constitution by an attempt to enter forbidden by law, to appeal to the Constitution. He's a little, I mean, this is the court saying over 115 years ago, to, to create constitutional rights for, for these people is to concede that this is a land governed by, by that supreme law and as under it the power to exclude has been determined to exist those who are excluded cannot assert the rights in general obtaining in a land to which they do not belong as citizens or otherwise and again if you're a criminal alien you're the same thing because now you're out and gorsuch is screwing us on this and again this is nothing new gorsuch bragged about how you know he was so, so into due process during the confirmation hearings because he was referring to his famous the famous case where he went off on Chevron. It was Gutierrez. Gosh, I'm forgetting it here. I apologize. Um, just trying to get 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 what that case was, but Gutierrez something in the Tenth Circuit. People think that the Chevron case was a regulatory case. It was not. It was an immigration case. It was another case where it was unclear how to read a statute. So, yes, for an American, um, you know, by default, you don't punish the guy. But this was an illegal alien. It was a question whether he had the ability to ask for a certain leniency from the attorney general's office. You know, there's all these loopholes. Yeah, maybe you might be entitled to, but, you know. The executive branch is reading one statute. Now, look, there's one thing if the courts say, look, no, we believe statute says like this. Statute does allow the guy to remain here. That's how we read. Okay, I can understand. But Gorsuch isn't saying that. He was saying, in that case, it was ambiguous. In this case, he's saying, well, I don't like the fact that the statute gives too much authority to the executive. Really? Who are you? Who are you? 
This is a very big problem, and this is why we always lose in the courts. Anyway, I hate to be a sack full of bad news today, but anyway, gotta run. Way too much going on. Gotta get back to work. Send me your feedback. Um, what you think? Am I overreading this? You know, some of you that are into this stuff, into legal stuff. I'm I'm very concerned about it for one thing. I'm certainly concerned about this administration. And once again, we do not have a Republican Party, a conservative movement, or an administration that is speaking to what conservatives find important on any given issue. We need to create that movement, and God willing, we will. Till next time, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.